You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Luba Lasiva, who is the lead at Palomni VC, the Palantir Alumni Syndicate and Fund. She also helps tech companies get out of the weeds of fundraising and investor management and back to building great products via her work with L4C. On this week's episode, we talk about syndicate versus fund, what are the benefits and negatives for each as an investor? How can a syndicate be used for a VC fund to screen deals? What are the steps to take a fund from zero to one? How does one tap into an existing network? What's the cold start problem? And much more. All right. This episode covers a lot of topics, which I'm sure our audience is going to enjoy. So, well, let's dive right into this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. All right, Luba, welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast. Thank you for taking the time today to be on this this show. Now, I've known you for years. You were introduced by a mutual friend, Davis, who, God, I think I was the first or second person he met when he came from Australia here. But I mean, I've known you for years, but could you tell our audience a little bit about your career up until this point? Sure. First up, thank you so much for having me on here. Super excited about our chat. A little bit about me. Let me see. So I grew up in Australia, which is how I know Davis. Um, I started my career in investment banking after graduating an actuarial studies degree. I was an investment banker very, very briefly, about a year and a half into my career. I saw the light and decided that I didn't want to be giving advice to folks. I wanted skin in the game. Sorry. (laughs) Um, So very quickly went to the buy side. I then spent a few more years in Australia investing in what today would be called growth equity. But at the time was called the merchant desk of Goldman Sachs or investing in energy. One of my favorite investments to demonstrate this with is we had an investment that I was managing in a UK-based fuel card. So a credit card that you gave to truck drivers so they could fill up the truck with petroleum or gas, as you call it in the States. At the time, we wrote that up as an equity investment in an energy company. Today, this would be growth stage investing in fintech, obviously. So the terms change. But one thing that I always found very interesting is to be investing and putting skin in the game behind my decisions in very rapidly growing companies that were solving real problems. After Australia, I went to the Middle East, where I spent three years working for the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority. I invested $200 million on behalf of Adia split that half-half across direct investments in tech startups and LP commitments to VC funds. So Adia is one of the entities that actually gives VC funds the money to invest in founders. After that, I joined a portfolio company of one of our major LP relationships and became the head of investor relations at Palantir. While at Palantir, I raised the company's Series J and Series K rounds and Yes, the alphabet really does run that far. And there will come a point in my life where I can say J and K were talking about fundraising and not giggle. But we're not there yet. Those two rounds were $1.2 billion between them. 
And I also did some other strategic finance initiatives, such as working on some of Palantir's JVs and pricing some large contracts. After I left Palantir, because I had this role as a commander-in-chief of a one-woman army, and because I was a woman working in the finance team of a tech company, you know, the, the two slices of the Venn diagram with very heavy female representation, obviously, a lot of folks knew me either by face because we'd had a conversation or a meeting or because they'd seen my name on emails. After I left Palantir, it became very natural for folks to reach out to me to ask for advice on basically everything equity-related. So if they were looking over a competing job offer, or if they were deciding whether or not to sell their options, I became known as sort of the trusted source of advice on everything equity-related. And so in the long-ago era pre-COVID, what that meant was a couple of times a week, grab coffee, a blue bottle, and walk up and down University Avenue for an hour giving free advice on sort of how to value stock comp, important things to think about when you're analyzing a potential company, whether it's because you're looking to make an angel investment or because you're looking to join them as an employee, and just broadly my thoughts on fundraising and investing. This was a very informal network. I'd sort of be doing this for a couple of days a week. And then COVID hit. And what I found was everything was speeding up. So something that had happened a couple of times a week was now happening a couple of times a day. It became a lot easier for folks to reach me. And so I realized that I was having a lot of these conversations and then I was knowing two overlapping pools of people. Folks who had some funds to invest, especially with Palantir listing during COVID lockdowns. And those folks were looking to make investments in early stage tech companies. And folks who were fundraising and looking to launch their startup and who were predominantly quite early in their startup's journey. And I was like, well, this sounds like a marketplace, but I am the meat robot in the middle of this marketplace. And I'm not very effective at being that juncture. Why don't we look to productize it a little bit? I've been doing a bunch of investing on AngelList. I've done about 30, 40 investments at that point in time on the platform. And so I thought quite erroneously that, you know, maybe if I put up a landing pad for a syndicate to invest in Palantir alumni companies, I could maybe get like 40, maybe 60 people to join the syndicate. And I thought there's probably about, I don't know, 20, 25 companies founded or led by a Palantir alum. And I could have this nice little side gig where once a week, I'd spend an hour or two on the syndicate and we make two to three investments a year. Now, good quality investments, build a portfolio over about five years. It's not a sort of high commitment job. I was obviously really, really, really wrong. There's 198 startups founded or led by a Palantir alum. We now have 800 LPs within our syndicate. In fact, we had our first LP, so investor within the syndicate, in half an hour and three by the end of the very first day. All through Thanksgiving 2020 and into the new year, we doubled our LP count every single day. And it was this incredible experience because I'm, I felt like I was holding product market fit in the hand. Like this flywheel of growth, we were doubling every single day. Um, and at a certain point, I stopped doing all investor outreach because it was just growing so rapidly at that point. So needless to say, this is no longer a part-time gig. 
we now have a formal name, Alumni VC, and a brand logo, as you can see up the top. We've made 11 investments in nine companies. We've been very fortunate. Two of the companies that we've invested in have had a follow-on round, and we've had the opportunity to invest in that as well. We've got 800 LPs in the syndicate, and our investment pipeline is almost 200 companies strong. So it's quite exciting and quite a lot of work. Okay, so there's so much there. I think I've already figured out every question I'm going to ask you for the interview. For our audience, though, if you heard any background noise through this, a baby, you're not going crazy. Okay, Luba does have a, have a brand newborn child. So if you heard any of that in the background, you know, your speakers, your audio is perfectly fine. So just letting everyone know. But all right, so Luba, question there. So, I mean, there's so much to, to, to dive in. But one of the things I was thinking of right at the beginning was, you know, you hear the PayPal mafia and, you know, now and throughout time, there's been so many successful companies in Silicon Valley. I mean, eBay had an angel group, PayPal had an angel group. Why don't more companies have an angel group associated with them? I mean, I, I really haven't heard of any others. I mean, I hear of yours now, Palantir, and then a few in the past, but that's a 20 year gap. You know, I don't like to speak for other networks and other syndicates because I haven't worked at some of the other startups. But what I will say is that something that's unique to Palantir is the caliber of employee that the company hired from the very beginning. All of the very earliest use cases for the company involved you being more or less on your own at a military base, usually overseas. And so the company really hired for folks who were able to be airdropped to be a one-woman, one-man team. People who were very technical, people who had a very broad range of skill sets, people who were able to operate independently, people who had amazing common sense and were able to talk to users and onboard users, people who were able to convert contracts, and also folks who were just very comfortable with ambiguity. A lot of those skill sets really, really translate well to being a founder. Something else that's quite interesting about the network is that not only did Palantir hire folks sorry, who were very entrepreneurial and very technical, there's now been nine unicorns founded or led by a Palantir alum and two publicly listed companies in addition to Palantir. Another interesting thing about the network of Palantir alums is not only did Palantir hire folks who are very, very entrepreneurial and very comfortable with ambiguity and comfortable and experienced in building teams from scratch, the company is now so advanced and so old. There's been quite the ecosystem of folks who left and have built billion-dollar companies. There's nine unicorns founded or led by a Palantir alum and two publicly listed companies in addition to Palantir. What that means is within the network, you have this great base of folks who not only can go from zero to one, but can also go from one to 100. So it makes hiring and scaling a lot more effective and a lot more powerful as well. Okay, so it sounds like due to the employees and, and kind of that seed that was planted allows that that ain't, well, actually it, it kind of just fosters a whole growth and. I mean, there was so much there. Okay, okay. Another question then. Syndicate versus fund. You mentioned, you know, you were well, one kind of led in the other, but I'm not really sure if our audience really can really knows the difference of each. Could you go a little bit deeper? Sure. 
So a syndicate is a network of investors called limited partners or LPs who look at investments together and then for each potential investment, decide whether or not to invest. For example, we have almost 800 LPs in our network, in our syndicate, and 281 of them have invested alongside us. In fact, seven of our LPs have within the syndicate have invested in every single deal that we've done. Now, for investors like that, or just investors that are very time poor, because our investment allocations have historically filled in a business day. So lots of folks just don't get time to look at an investment opportunity in order to commit before that fills up. For those sorts of investment investors, it makes sense to commit to a fund. A fund is a one-time commitment and you're relying on the, the judgment of the general partner, the GP, to make those investments in your behalf. So if you commit to a fund, you make one investment decision and you get exposure to the investment decisions going forward. Um, if you commit to a syndicate, you review each deal one by one. Okay, then how could a syndicate be used for a VC fund to screen deals? So there's a few ways you can use a syndicate. The most obvious one is actually to resolve what is termed as the cold start problem. So historically for emerging managers who are not just spitting out of an existing fund, there's this problem where no one will give you money to invest until you have an investment track record and you can't build an investment track record without having money to invest. No founders will also take your money or take your commitment to give them money unless you actually have that money. They just don't trust that it's real with good cause. Syndicates are a really great way to resolve that issue because you really don't have to ask anyone for permission. If you can get allocation, you can post the opportunity to the syndicate and folks can decide on the merits of that opportunity, whether or not they want to invest. It lowers the bar of trust and the length of relationship required to invest with an emerging manager. Because you can base some of your due diligence as a limited partner, as an LP, in the caliber of the deal, as well as the caliber of the fund manager. Okay, that makes sense. Because I mean, the fund, you're putting the money in based on that thesis and, and you're trusting that they're going to pick great deals. Whereas the syndicate, you know what they're going to put the money in. So you, you're evaluating not only the person, but the deal itself. So, so that makes sense. So with that, what's your syndicate thesis? Alumni VC invests exclusively in Palantir alumni founders. We want to be the first call for a founder who's ex-Palantir, no matter what they're building and where they are in the world. Okay, pretty good thesis there. Then um, I guess my next question for you is, you know, times are changing the economy. We've had ups and downs. We have no idea what's happening in the future. If, say, the economy does crash or there, it, it does go down, and the value of all these stock options that the, these Palantir employ, or, or not, so, but anyone, all these private companies on the second are holding, is this a good time? I guess what I'm trying to say in summary, is this a good time for company, for people to go and start new startups? Or are there not going to be any startups to invest in? Are there going to be a plethora? Like, what would happen if the economy does go down, which some people are predicting? Not saying it's going to happen, but just saying, what if? So good question. What we've seen within our network is that co-founders and founders who were previously very keen to start a company, but had some golden handcuffs. 
They were getting very well paid by a large publicly listed tech company, whether that was Palantir or whether that was whoever they joined after leaving Palantir. But now the opportunity cost of leaving that large employer and starting their own thing has gone way down. A large portion of their comp was always the equity portion. And now that's just not worth as much. So we're actually seeing an acceleration of company formation, at least within our own network. To give you an idea of how entrepreneurial we are relative to the rest of the industry and sort of what the trend looks like, the current YC batch has four companies in it, founded or led by Palantir Love. So we're definitely not seeing a slowdown. Just for our audience out there that might not know, I mean, how many companies apply to YC? I mean, how difficult is it to get into YC? Just don't need exact numbers, but just a, a ballpark, just to put it in perspective of what that really means. Sure. Um, so YC is the preeminent accelerator for startups globally. It is very difficult to get accepted into a YC batch. Their acceptance rate is about 2%. There's about 20,000 companies that apply and about three to 400 are selected at a time. So it's quite competitive. And it's also a very successful program. They have a very great success ratio with some of the top startups like Airbnb that came out of that program. All right. So please continue. Please continue. One other thing on the topic of the broader economy that I like to chat about with founders is that while investor appetite may have slowed somewhat and there's less free money slushing around with the Fed hiking interest rates, investors are always interested in founding great companies led by great founders. And so if you have a great track record whether being a second or third time founder or elsewhere, investors will want to chat to you. Being where I am in the ecosystem, it's very easy for me to get references on founders at the earliest stages. And really at the earliest stage, that's what you're investing in. You don't really have a built product. The market doesn't exist a lot of the time. And so for me to be able to get about a dozen references in 36 hours, kind of view that as playing early stage investing in easy mode. I really know quite quickly how great a founder is in terms of their technical skills, their ability to lead a team, their ability to inspire others to join their team or to follow them along, their ability to explain technical concepts to customers and to partners. All of those inputs are much easier for me to do diligence than any other random investor. And so I know that I'm still interested in investing in great founders. And I have a great network of investors that I like to co-invest with. And they're still interested in, in investing in great founders. And once you close around, any hires that you make are just going to be a little bit easier. There are, once again, less free money sloshing around. So folks are going to be broadly more available. Folks are also going to be very interested in the caliber of the team that they join. They're less likely to think about it as like, oh, well, I'll try it out. You know, the salary is really high. And then if it doesn't work out, whatever, I'll just leave. Those competing opportunities for engineers and for great technical talent are just not as plentiful. So hiring for great founders has actually gotten easier, probably. There's one thing you mentioned there when you're doing due diligence on the founder, being able to get so many references. Just wondering, because... I'm guessing a lot of founders out there, they probably think, okay, due diligence, I give them my pitch deck, they ask me a few questions, that's it. 
how deep do you dive with their network to really find out who that person is? It's a good question. I spend a lot of time looking at the caliber of a founder and also at how well they understand their space. So it's less about reading the deck, but more about asking second and third order questions about the deck. So when we're talking about the product, okay, your product will do this. Why is that important? Oh, because customers have asked for it. What customers? What is the crucial pain point that you're selling? Why is it a pain point for them? Making sure the founder understands their space, but also making sure the founder is a great founder who can build. And that doesn't mean that every single reference I get on a founder is going to be glowing. Founders are very stubborn, very driven, usually, although not exclusively, very technical. And so a lot of the time, yes, those skills don't correlate well with being a good employee. Some great founders are terrible employees. So when I hear feedback, I enjoy getting critical feedback back. But then I have to calibrate that feedback. Okay, this was feedback about an employee. What does that say about this person and their potential to be a founder? If I'm noticing a skill set that's missing in their background and in their references, I look at the rest of the co-founding team. Oh, you told me that this individual was really bright, really driven, was pretty good technically, but you don't remember any specific thing that they were great at. Excellent. They're the CEO. They're not the CTO. (laughs) Conversely, if this person was a great technologist, built some amazing products, but was a little bit too, let me see, uninhibited, with pointing out the critical missing pieces of the product and you wouldn't trust them in front of a customer, that's fine. They're the CTO. I'm going to focus a lot more on the commercial skills of the CEO in that example. I'm just picturing how many people are listening right now going, wait, that's me, but I don't like that description. (laughs) And I think that brings up a really good point. We just went through a two-year cycle where VCs were so desperate to be liked by founders It was very much a founder's choice market. And I don't think that leads to great long-term returns. I think it's much more important as a VC to consider yourself as a steward of capital. Someone else has entrusted their capital to you. And it's not faceless dollars. That's their kid's college fund. That's their spouse's retirement fund. That's money that they had very emotional needs for the well-being of their family and of their children. And so you have to be a good steward of that capital and really think about whether this will lead to great risk-adjusted returns when you put money out the door. And so that's an important aspect. But the other important aspect is a great investor for a founder is not the investor that's super friendly. Because they're super friendly to you in a bull market. Where are they going to be when the going gets tough? A really great investor is Someone who's a good partner, not a good friend. They're going to challenge you when it's needed. They're also going to be available when the going gets tough. It's certainly very, very important to ask, are they going to pick up my call at 3 a.m. when I call them with a last-minute problem? My CTO just quit. Hey, a large customer just walked away. As a founder, you want a VC that will take the call and talk about that problem and talk about some potential resolutions to that problem. You don't just want a good time friend for the good times. Question on that one. And I've never actually asked an investor this, but I'm curious your response. What type of boundaries 
should uh, an investor put around their relationship, their time with one of their investments? So it's a good question. You know, I'm an Aussie. And so I have this reputation for being, I like to call it honest and very actionable in my feedback. Some other people may call them blunt. You may choose the adjective that you want. But I think for me, and I've been an investor in illiquid equities for over a decade now. And so I personally don't have a problem saying like, this has gotten too much. And to be fair, I don't think it ever really has. I've done seven restructures in my career in the last actually 15 years, not 10. I'm dating myself now. And those are very time intensive. Whenever the going gets tough with any portfolio company, um, that does take up a lot of time. But as with children, some are up, some are down, some are growing, some are having issues. And so there's a balance within the portfolio and there should be a balance within your life. Some things will be going well, some things not so well and need more attention. Okay, then with that, there was one thing that was said very early on when you mentioned, when we talked about your career up until this point, you said one woman army. So why one woman army before Palantir? Why won't one woman army right now with the syndicates and the fun? Why? So it would definitely be easier to have a co-founder for the syndicate and a co-GP for the investing. But I happened to be on my own when I got the idea. And so I didn't want to wait for a co-founder for a syndicate or a fund. And so I did it. Having now done it on my own for two years, while I'm cognizant of the benefits that having someone else to bounce ideas off brings, I'm also very judicious about using some of our co-investment partners and our syndicate LPs to help with that. When I think an investment is going to be especially contentious, or when there's something unusually risky about an investment, I will go and, and sense check key LPs, especially LPs who have expertise in that specific space. Whether that's because... And I should touch a little bit on our LP base within the syndicate. We're very, very heavily co-founders and operators within our LP base. So it's very easy for me to go check with the LP base and pick specific individuals and ask them, like, would you use this product? Would you buy this product? Hey, you're in this sector. Is this really a pain point for you? And having that great relationship with my LPs helps me quite a lot. And I get 800 voices if I want to use all of them rather than just one co-GP. The other thing that I think is not discussed as much. Venture capital and venture capital podcasts, especially, are very optimistic. And you kind of have to be if you're a technologist, right? If you're a pessimist, you don't go and start a company. If you're a pessimist, you don't want to go and talk to people who want to start companies. I view what we do as quite exciting and optimistic about the future of the world. I think the world is going to get better. And I want to be part of making that happen. And so one of the things that is not discussed as much because of this inherent optimism is funds break up. Funds break up quite regularly because of that co-GP conflict. It is in many ways like a marriage. When you launch a fund, you're sort of in there for a 10-year cycle for the fund life. And a lot can happen in that time. And so where I am in the life cycle of Plum ABC right now, I enjoy being able to move quickly as a solo GP. I enjoy having a great relationship with our LPs and being able to call on them for advice and extra data when I feel I need it. And I don't necessarily want to take the additional risk of a GP breakup. It's, it's funny you say that. There's a, a VC that I actually interviewed for this podcast, and I won't say names, 
it was around maybe 30, 40 episodes ago. And literally the day after the episode was recorded, the fun separated. He, him and oh, no. uh, the GP guy, and argue, well, I guess they'd been arguing for quite some time. And then the final straw was literally the day after we did a podcast on how great their fun was. And he didn't tell me about it till we caught up a few months later. I was like, oh, interesting. So, so it's kind of, I mean, I'm guessing people listening to this right now probably have no idea that funds actually break up, you know, quite often. They, they think, okay, startup founders do, but the other side of the table, they're, they're solid. They're, they've been around. They, so that, that's really interesting. So with that, you're one woman army. Can you tell us the steps that you did when you created your first fund, the, the zero to one? I think for those who are looking to launch their own fund or syndicate, one of the first things you have to think about is your unique investor market fit. What are you as an investor uniquely positioned to invest in? That may be a sector, that may be a stage, that may be a geography, that may be a network, as in my case. But you really have to have a very clear idea of what your strengths are. And your fund thesis has to reflect that. I think the next step beyond that is trying to make that concrete. So write up a list of things that you could or would invest in within that thesis and a list of things that you would not invest in. And one thing I counsel other emerging managers on quite clearly here is in almost every investment thesis, there are contentious investments. Would you have invested in Jewel? Would you invest in Anduril? Would you invest in ADHD medication over Zoom call? Those are contentious decisions. And so as an investor, you have to think about what you would have done and not done and why. And it's great to have those in your portfolio and say, we will do this or we will not do this or we would have done this. And if you don't believe that that's a right investment, then don't come on board. I am a huge proponent of investing in defense tech. And I've been very, very open with our LP base from the very beginning. If you don't think that you want your money used for Adaton or Anduril, don't join our syndicate. Don't come on this journey with us. Because we believe that investing in defense tech is crucial to defending democracy and the values that we hold very dear. And so we would rather not have folks on board that don't agree. There will be other fund managers with different theses that don't want to invest in that. And that's absolutely fine. It's a very large economy. You can decide to carve out whatever sector you want, but that's not what we believe in. Okay. So your fund, the steps taken from zero to one, and you've used services like AngelList for this. Why use AngelList? And if there are more steps that you can share for those first time, for people thinking of maybe raising a fund or first time fund managers, please, please let us know. A very temporally sensitive question. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. When you are deciding what back office providers to choose, think very carefully about how reliable they are, how stable they are, and how long they've been in the market. Also think about how their business model actually works. Who's the end customer? And are they charging enough to be financially soluble in the long run? If you're entrusting another entity, as most fund managers are, to spool up your SPVs to do your K1 reporting, 
you need someone that's going to do it for the next five to 10 years for all of your LPs and all of your investments. I went with AngelList because I think they provide a great service, but also because they're stable, they're reputable, they're well-respected. I mean, I love AngelList enough that I invested in them myself, which is probably as big of a vote of confidence as you can get from a GP on the platform. And they've been great to me, actually well before I invested. But I think AngelList is very supportive of emerging managers. I think the product is very well regarded in the market, but it's also very lightweight. It is not terrifying for a first-time manager to use. Okay. And then another question, maybe a little bit to the side, but tapping into your network. I know this is a topic you like to to talk about. Can you give us some suggestions, some advice on how to go about doing that, how to think about one's existing current network? Do you mean in terms of launching a thesis on that network or in terms of investing or invest in, leverage in, get into where you want to go next in your life or basically utilizing it as to its maximum? I think if you're thinking about making better use of your personal network, maybe the first step is to think about whether or not you even like people. VC investing is actually quite people-driven. We all have our jokes about being on the spectrum and so on. But I think it's very hard to be in this profession and not enjoy spending time with people. You know, And that can mean different things for different people. Some people are very outgoing have a very sales personality and love speaking in front of 200 folks. And some people prefer more quiet one-to-one coffees. But I think you have to really enjoy learning more about people, what they're interested in, what motivates them, what they're frightened of. I think great investors tend to have that in common. That's a little bit different to many other types of investing, whether private market or listed. I think that's less of a focus in hedge fund and real estate investing and private equity. And then the next step on looking to leverage your network is if you enjoy people, have a look around your network and see what people are looking for. Do you get repeated questions from the same people over and over? Is there some commonality? And the startup grind does this well, but there's many other examples of trying to give first. I think if you go to your network with demands immediately, people are going to be rightfully suspicious. Really think about what you have that's unique, as we talked about earlier, and what your network is looking for and see if you can meet some of those needs first. You know, I think some ecosystems around the world function with different currency. The currency that's unique to Silicon Valley. And, uh, you know, I now think Silicon Valley is not a geographically limited term. Silicon Valley is now in the cloud, but that common ethos, the currency is really favors. Give people help, introduce them to new customers, new potential investors, things that are helpful to them or to their company, and activate those flywheels. Wait for things to come back before marching in with a demand. Luba, that's interesting because for our audience out there, you've moved from Silicon Valley to Miami. Can you talk about this move and kind of what you just mentioned right there, the currency Silicon Valley favors? And because there is talk of is Silicon Valley dying is so many people here over the last two years have moved to Austin, Miami, to even Vegas, Tennessee. They've sprawled out all over throughout the U.S. Some have even moved. I have buddies that have moved to Columbia that, that took their companies here and over there. And 
I'm not sure if they're coming back. Who knows? But tell us about about your your thoughts of is Silicon Valley did it already have its peak or what is Silicon Valley? I think Silicon Valley is an ethos, and I think the ethos has moved online. I think it is increasingly easier to build a company under that ethos and under that framework in other parts of the world. I will say it is still predominantly a North America based network um, where it is very favorable to be on the East Coast or West Coast time zones of the US. And so it gets a little bit harder if you are in Asia or elsewhere in the Pacific, just for time zone reasons. I will say though that Silicon Valley moving to the cloud doesn't mean that every company is remote only. We have companies in our portfolio headquartered in Mountain View. We have companies in our portfolio headquartered in New York. We have companies in our portfolio headquartered in London. But a lot of the companies that we see growing really well, even if they're not in Silicon Valley, they're quite often very small teams working closely together in person. Once again, doesn't mean we'll never invest in a remote-only company. But even for founders that were remote first, they will find quite often at a certain crucial point that they want to get some shared space for the team to go and brainstorm together. Okay. And then over the two years, as everyone has left Silicon Valley and now we're in the cloud, and I'm going to be thinking about that after the interview quite quite a bit. One thing that, that you've worked on over this time is I heard you're an expert at webinars. Can Can you share a little bit about that? I have been doing a lot of webinars through COVID lockdown. I have gotten better with each one, but as with all things, I get better with practice. I do find it very helpful to over-remote. I think we underestimate how much both the compression algorithm and just being physically distant from someone flattens reactions. And so I think it's super important to overemphasize the body language and the tone of voice so that comes across a little bit better over Zoom than it would otherwise. There's also a few things I've learned with time around, you know, if it's at scale, doing breakout rooms judiciously about varying the voices that are talking. So having a call and response or having multiple people providing the, the technical content. I think that keeps it quite lively, but also gives some of the audience different things to hook onto. You really have to think about your audience and what it is that they want out of this conversation, out of this webinar, whatever it may be, and make sure you're hitting those notes. Well, there's a lot of, lot of items there. I hope, hope our audience is going to create a little checkoff list for when they have their next webinar. Luba, before we wrap up, I mean, two questions, two more questions for you. One, I mean, your career has expanded. What you've accomplished is second to none. So with all that, what are some lessons you've learned on this journey? And then if anyone wants to learn more about you, what you're working on, what's the best way to go about doing that? The biggest lesson I've learned in this journey is let the customer lead you. And so for me, that is both the founders and the LPs. Um, and so I really look to see what it is that they're interested in. I think a lot of folks get into tech or get into VC with this motivation of little pet projects and science experiments. Well, when I'm a VC, I'll do more of these kinds of deals. Or, you know, when I start a company, this is the problem I'll work on. 
you really have to think about like, is there actual demand for this? Will you get to product market fit walking down this path? So talk to customers, talk to investors, talk to users and try and focus on someone else's problems, not yours. Once again, we come back to the same thing as we did in the network point. Solve someone else's problem before you demand that yours be sold. I think if folks want to learn more, you can basically Google my name, but you can join the syndicate at alumni.vc, P-A-L-U-M-N-I, uh, like PAL and alumni. You can join the syndicate and you can also get access to some of our more common content on Twitter and LinkedIn. And we'll post the links in the show notes. All right. And, and Luba, before we wrap up, tell us about the logo. How did you come up with that? The, the joy of having great technical LPs is a lot of them are really great designers. I am not a great designer. So fortunately, we had a great, great designer in our network, Adam Storer, who was able to take a little scribble that I made on a post-it note and make it look quite presentable. But we really want to hit that we'd love to get involved with companies and founders from the very, very earliest stages. And so from little things, big things will grow. Oh, I love it. All right. With that, we're going to have all that information in the show notes. And for our audience out there, when I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast, I'm a mid-market investment banker, focus mergers, acquisition, growth capital. Connect with me on LinkedIn at Sean, S-H-A-W-N, Flynn, F-L-Y-N-N. I'm always open for a conversation. And also go to thesiliconvalleypodcast.com where you see the archives of all our interviews, some of them referenced in today's episode. But more than anything, Luba, I want to thank you for your time this week on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Thank you. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.